1: You got to have a steady diet. You can't be hit or miss because if you hit or miss, you get a little piece of that and a little piece of this. Well, you know, that's not the best diet for you. But if you get in the word of God and completely allow the word of God to speak to your heart, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, you'll see what a difference it makes in your life. So Daniel chapter one, the book of Daniel. Wow. I actually got to tell you, I, I just struggle, 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 struggle with this chapter and probably going to be struggling with this book because there's so much, you know, there's only so much, so many minutes I have to preach. And so if there's so much to say, so little time to say it that you have to really be careful and, and say what the Lord puts on your heart and pick and choose what you're going to say because you can't say it all in one setting and in one time frame And because and, it's so awesome. God's Word is just so rich. It's so awesome. God's Word is so awesome. All y'all should say amen. Even if you don't know it, say it anyway because <laughs> you will know it because you're going to be here to know it. Now say amen. amen. There you go. It's so great. God's Word is so great. Book of Daniel, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Rich, if you're one of those kind of people that like action, you like drama, this is the book for you. I mean, this book is filled with action and drama and, and, and intrigue. There's a combination, if you will, of high drama and far-reaching prophecy we have dreams and visions of world rulers and lions and tigers and bears. So It's in there. See, if you read it, you would know that already. And we've got fiery furnaces and lion's dens. We have strange and fierce beasts battling it out for world domination. I mean, this book is unbelievable and very, very exciting. You know, when I first mentioned to you that we were going to be doing teaching through the, uh, the book of Daniel, and I first mentioned it some Wednesdays ago, uh, uh, people, you heard in the audience, you heard people go, Oh, ah. Say it together. Say, ah, one, two, three. Ah, that's what I heard. And, 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 and it was amazing. And, 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 you know, why, why do people, you know, when you talk about the book of revelation, you talk about the, the book of Ezekiel, you talk about the book of Daniel. Why is it that people, Ooh, and ah, well, I think the reason is, is because you you know, Christians get excited about prophecy, Christians get excited when you start talking about eschatology, not your word for the day. That simply means the study of end times. So Christians get excited about those things. What is prophecy? Well, I think simply, if you're taking notes, get your pen, get your pad. You got to take notes. Prophecy, what is a good definition for prophecy? Well, you know, I like to keep it simple. I think it's as simple as this. Prophecy is history in advance. History in advance. That's prophecy. And so Christians, we get excited about prophecy. We get excited about the subject of prophecy because it confounds the critics and it confirms the Christian. Prophecy confounds the critics and confirms the Christians. When you see prophecy fulfilled, it confirms even more the truth of the word of God. If you agree with that, say amen. It's so true. And that's why over the next several months, the book of Daniel will be comforting to the Christians at Calvary Chapel because it will confirm even further our faith. It will, and you see, it will. Now, here's a little bit of background. If you're taking notes, the book of Daniel has been called the Revelation of the Old Testament. The book of Revelation, the Revelation of the Old Testament. In other words, Daniel is the is to the Old Testament what the book of Revelation is to the New Testament. These two prophetic books go hand in hand. And you can't fully understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the book of Daniel. Many scholars have said and they have said that Daniel is the key that unlocks the book of Revelation and the Olivet discourse. That is found in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and it's in Matthew 24 and 25 that we find the Olivet Discourse. Now, if you're not familiar with the Olivet Discourse, the Olivet Discourse is when Jesus took his disciples up on the Mountain of Olives, and he showed them the entire scope of history and what would be the signs of his return. So if you study the book of Daniel and the Olivet Discourses, you will see that what Jesus is saying there in Matthew 24 and 25 will become clearer as you compare with the book of Daniel, as you study the book of Daniel. And that's why many scholars say the book of Daniel is the, T-H-E-E-E, E-E, two E's, the most important book of prophecy in the Bible, Many scholars believe that. It's the key to prophetic revelation. Now, I should tell you, there, are, there is a lot of criticism out there as it relates to the authorship, who wrote it, the book of Daniel. Who is the author? A lot of criticism. Why? Well, these so-called higher critics who I like to say are from the lower pit, they say the book of Daniel, get this, they say the book of Daniel couldn't have been written in the 6th century, as the Bible says. It couldn't have been written in the 6th century. They say that the prophecies, and here's why, because the prophecies of Daniel are too precise and accurate, therefore it couldn't have been written in the 6th century. It had to be written in 50 AD by a fake Daniel. Now, there's logic for you. Hello, we're talking about God. Who knows the end from the beginning? We're talking about God. He knows the end from the beginning. Now, there are many, 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 and I, you know, I struggle with this one. There are many, many issues that the critics have with Daniel and in the book of Daniel, and we won't deal with them all tonight. You can bore yourself with that later. I just want to tell you that Daniel is Daniel because Jesus said it was Daniel. Matthew 24, verse 15 says this. Therefore, Jesus is speaking. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet, Jesus himself acknowledges Daniel, the prophet, to be Daniel. And therefore, it is my feeling if these higher critics from the lower pit think they know more than Jesus, then they've got a bigger problem than the authorship of Daniel. Amen, saints. So with that, we'll jump right in. Daniel chapter one. Beginning in verse 1. Saints, if you're there, say amen. amen. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, his who? Nebuchadnezzar. With some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Let's just stop right there. Give me your attention. The book opens, taking notes, 605 BC. The book opens with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire. He is the most powerful potentate and ruler of that day. And he is seeking to consolidate his power in the Middle East. And he be, besieges Jerusalem 605 B.C. Important to remember. Jehoiakim was the king in Judah. He was a car, cardinal king or fleshly king. Carnal king. Fleshly king. His name means, Jehoiakim means, Yahweh raises up. But the Lord did not raise him up. Pharaoh did. Now here's what happened. King Nebi He led a total of three deportations or three attacks on Jerusalem. The first one happened in 605 B.C. The pharaoh of Egypt invaded Babylon. In response to that invasion, King Nebuchadnezzar attacked the Egyptians at Charchemish. That's the name of the place. And he chased them all the way down to Sinai. On the way back to Babylon, he came to Jerusalem And he attacked Jerusalem because Jerusalem allied themselves with Egypt. It was in 605 BC, he did not destroy Jerusalem, although he did set up a garrison. He set up some troops and some forces there to guard the city. Right in the middle of the battle, now listen, right in the middle of the battle with Jerusalem, besieging Jerusalem, His father died, and in order to secure the throne, not concern for his father, but in order to secure the throne, he went back to Babylon right in the middle of the battle. He did not take over the city at that time. That was the first deportation, and many were taken in that deportation, including Daniel. Daniel. Daniel went to Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar's first deporting of the people from Jerusalem, 605 BC. And then the second deportation or the second attack on Jerusalem happened in 597 BC when Jehoiakim's son rebelled against the Babylonian troops that were stationed in Jerusalem to enforce the Babylonian law. The Babylonians won the battle. And the king and his family and 10,000 captives were taken in Babylonian captivity. And in this deportation, we have Ezekiel, who was taken captive. So we already know that Daniel was in Babylon before Ezekiel. We also know that Daniel... And Ezekiel were contemporaries. They were friends. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 14, don't quote me on that one, 14-ish, he says, (laughs) he talks about Daniel being um, in the same ranks of men like Noah and Job and it's awesome. So they were friends. They were contemporaries. Ezekiel went to Babylon in the second deportation, which brings us to the third and the final the third and final deportation or attack on Jerusalem that happened in 586 BC. Zedekiah, the new king in Jerusalem, he was a puppy king. At first he decided to uh you know, give in to Nebuchadnezzar and his, you know, tactics and his plans, but then he decided to rebel. And after a long, brutal, bloody battle, the city of Jerusalem fell, and the Babylonians leveled the city, Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is burned, and most of the remaining Jews were taken to Babylon. Three main deportations. And then, just for your edification, and then in 539 BC, Cyrus overthrows Babylon, And he establishes what empire? The Medo-Persian Empire. I knew you knew that. And then in 538, one year later, B.C., Cyrus issues a decree allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And it was at that time that 50,000 Jews returned. They laid the foundation to the temple. In 515 B.C., the temple is completed And as Paul Harvey would say, and that is the end of the story. I found it interesting, though, that in 538 BC, only 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem. Why? Because they got comfortable in Babylon. They loved it there. Babylon was a beautiful, beautiful city. As a matter of fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the world the hanging gardens. Remember, they had almost more than 300 hanging gardens, flowers, plants, and stuff beautiful from around the world. And so the people of God got comfortable in Babylon when Cyrus said, look, all of you can go back to your homeland. Only 50,000 went back. Now notice in your text, the Lord gave the king of Judah into King Nebi's hand. And he went into the temple and he took the treasures and he carried them back to Shinar, which is kind of like a suburb of Babylon. It's just like a little section, a little area there in Babylon. And what did he do? He put them, the treasures, in the temple of his God. Now, this is pregnant. This little statement is pregnant with meaning. In the ancient world, when a city was conquered, it, was just, it wasn't just a victory for the city, it actually spoke of one God's superiority over another God. It, when, a, when, a, when a victory, when a, a piece of land was taken, it just wasn't about geography, it was about religion, it was about faith. It was about one God's superiority over another God. So, when I conquer you, I'm going to sack your temple, the temple of your God, and take the stuff with, uh, of, of your worship and take all your utensils that you worship your God with. I'm going to take them back to my God, and my God can gloat over your God. That's the mentality. So King Nebi put the articles in the temple of his God, Bel, B-E-L, which spoke of superiority over Yahweh. So to the Jewish mind, you gotta understand something here. I was talking to my wife about this. To the Jewish mind, Israel had been defeated by a more superior God, and it seemed as if all was hopeless. This is meant their mentality. This is the way they were thinking. So then it stands to reason why God gave Daniel visions. Because to the Jewish mind at this time in the context, it was over for them. The temple is destroyed. The worship items and the utensils and all of the things that they worship God, that they know God, all of the vessels and things that they have in fellowship with God, all of these things are gone. So to them, it's over. God gives Daniel visions about the future. Why? So that he can communicate to them God's faithfulness. So that Daniel can say, That no matter what happens, you will see and you will understand that God cannot, hasn't failed you. And one day, God will restore Israel as a nation and bring her into blessing. And no matter what, God is at work, even though it seems really dark right now. That's great. Why? Because that gives us hope. That even though, hey, maybe this is a word for you. Is it really dark in your life right now? Are things terrible in your life right now? Is it, does it look hopeless in your life right now? Can I tell you? Should I tell you? God is faithful. God is faithful. And see, we don't need visions and dreams to know that. We have the B-I-B-L-E. Basic instructions before leaving earth. (laughs) Say amen, saints. Oh, the word of God. See, God is so faithful. It may look dark. It may look pretty hopeless. But God is still at work. Now, notice, with that said, look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. If you're there, say amen. Well, then the king instructed Ashpenaz... It's kind of an interesting name. Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understanding, who had ability, notice this, to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave new names. He gave Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, stop right there. Notice Nebuchadnezzar. Tell you something about Nebuchadnezzar. He was a military genius, there's no question about that. But he was also a brilliant administrator of the empire. Notice he ordered Aspinaz, who was his right-hand eunuch, whatever that is, his right-hand eunuch, to, to choose the creme de la creme, the best of the best, of the boys who came out of the captivity. And they were to work in the royal court. And notice the qualifications. He was looking for men, boys, who had no blemish. In other words, they had no acne, no clear seal for these guys, all right? They needed to be well-favored, meaning that they were good-looking, very handsome, very good-looking guys. Skillful in wisdom and knowledge, meaning that they were at the top of their class. They were very smart. And they sent them, did you notice in verse 5, they sent them to their schools, let's call it Babylonian U, or the University of Babylon, for three years. Did you notice that? And it was for those three years that they were trained in their schools and taught their language, which is, by the way, another brilliant move on the behalf of Nebuchadnezzar. This man is a genius. Why is it brilliant? Well, by taking the kids, get this you hold the boys hostage, you're less likely to get a rebellion from the parents. Number one. Number two, by taking the children, the children are the next generation of the Jews. So to educate them and indoctrinate them because they will grow up and have a heart for Babylonian culture. You see? So you're holding them hostage, their parents. And you're indoctrinating them in Babylonian culture. So this is actually a good move because it warns the parents and woos the sons. Is that not what's going on today? Now, I don't know but maybe Warning the parents, yeah, I have some examples of that. But how about wooing our children? All kinds of ways. We don't have time to talk about that. Now, in addition to good education, they were to eat the king's best food. Now, there's just a little problem with that, okay? The king's choice wine and the meats that they offered to these boys was offered to idols. When they were to drink the wine, before you would drink a glass of wine, you would take the wine and pour it out on the ground, which was like an offering to their god, their false god. And the meats that they would eat were meats that were offered to idols, before they were eaten. So they would take a steak and put it before some statute, and if the statute didn't eat it, then you could eat it. (laughs) Are you with me? (laughs) So this is what they would do. Now, Daniel, he completely understood this, and so Daniel didn't want to take of the delicacies of the king. But the purpose for the food and the delicacies is as simple as this. Accept the Babylonian culture and leave the Hebrew culture and the Hebrew God behind. That was their point. Now, you want to take notice in verse six, it begins to single out the boys and the captives. And the whole story now begins to center on these boys. Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Taking notes, Daniel means God is my judge.
0: You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch and Calvary Chapel, Cary, located in Apex, North Carolina. Join Pastor Rodney Monday through Friday at this same time. For information regarding service times,